New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We are just now beginning to emerge from a collective initiation and rite of passage. The worldwide COVID pandemic has given us the first two parts of a rite of passage. That is, we experience separation from our normal lives, and we have gone through an ordeal of collective loss, death, and illness. It can be likened to a caterpillar emerging from its cocoon where it totally dissolved and emerged as a butterfly. We are now emerging into a new world and can bring with us the wisdom we've learned from this ordeal. We have the opportunity to widen the circles of our lives and see it with new eyes, and this ordeal can serve both to awaken the creative spirit of individuals and to recreate meaningful forms of community. To help us explore this pivotal time in human history is our guest, Michael Mead. Michael Mead is a renowned storyteller, author, scholar of mythology, and student of ritual in traditional cultures. He has scoured the world to bring to us meaningful folk tales that tap into ancestral sources of wisdom and acts as a guide to connect them to the stories we are living today. Mead is the founder of Mosaic Multicultural Foundation and also offers regular podcasts, Living Myths Podcast. He's the author of many books, including Awakening the Soul, A Deep Response to a Troubled World, and Water of Life, Initiation and the Tempering of the Soul. Join us for the next hours. We explore a critical moment of renewing not only ourselves, but of the culture in which we are embedded with our guest, Michael Mead. I'm speaking with Michael from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Michael, welcome. Good to see you and be with you, Justine. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure to be with you as well. As I mentioned in the introduction, we're beginning to emerge from a collective initiation. And as you see it, what is this? How you view it? I'm, I'm very excited by your vision of it. So initiation is a word that describes the dynamic of transformation. So um, it's an archetype. It's an ar archetypal dynamic. Like 
um, giving birth would be an archetypal dynamic. Well, this is like the archetypal dynamic of rebirth. And so watching all the troubles in the world and a very unusual time to be alive because nature is rattling and culture is unraveling at the same time. And so it's a major transformation. We happen to have um, worldwide communication now. And so that kind of makes it obvious that this is a global transformation because in the past, we'd only know when troubles and transformations were happening nearby. Now we know what's happening. We're all in this together. It's worldwide. It's global. It's nature. It's culture. So it's a major transformation. The word transformation means to move from one form through a transit to another. So that gives you the three stages of initiation of rite of passage. Leaving one form behind, you were using the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. And you mentioned that the in-between stage was a melting down almost, um, which we're going through. There's a melting down politically. There seems like it sometimes economically. And, and you also mentioned the loss of life, which is completely significant. Traditional rites of passage would be separation, some kind of brush with death, and, and then a rebirth. So the mystery, it used to be called the mystery, life, death, renewal, life, death, rebirth. And so years ago when I was trying to figure out what's going on, or, you know, climate crisis, you have this cascade of crises, climate crisis, now we have the pandemic crisis, but we also have the truth and meaning crisis, we have the bigotry and racism crisis, we have uh, economic crises, we've had several of those. So it's like worldwide crises. Um, so one of the few ways to understand it and see the possibility of meaningful change is to see it as an initiation or, or collective rite of passage. Uh, I've only seen hints of this before in my life. In the 60s, there was a partly collective uh, rite of passage that didn't finish itself. It never got completed, and everything kind of went back to where it was. Um, so this time, because it's global, because it's nature and culture, it seems like we have to find ways to bring it towards its conclusion, and its conclusion is renewal. So if you get to the last step and look back, then it's like, oh, I get it. The collapse, the upheaval, the losses were all to get us to this place of renewal. Not to be Pollyanna-ish, but to understand the mystery of life, which is acted out by nature day after day, which is the big trees fall down and they rot, and from them comes the next forest. If we don't know that, then we could be easily discouraged, defeated, or just collapse like the caterpillar in its collapse stage. Well, as you say, that the return um, is often minimized or, or even omitted. So there are these unfinished initiations, and that's what we're facing right now. Are we going to finish this initiation or not? Totally in question. And so the other name for the middle stage is liminal, liminality. Limin's a Latin word that means the bottom of a doorway, the threshold. 
So after the separation, which we literally have been going through months of social distancing, which the psyche, the soul, sees as separation. So the soul thinks we're in initiation. Uh, and in, in the middle, part of the or ordeal is not knowing. So in, in the midst of an initiation, the idea would be we're pulled further into life than we would choose to go on our own. So go back 15 months, and if people were going to take a vote and say, should we all go through a descent in which we have to recognize the presence of death and see a lot of illness and feel a lot of stress and all? People go, no, we're not voting for that. Initiation takes you to what, where you don't vote to go. And, uh, but it does that in order to generate the transformation. And so the middle ground where there are ordeals, but one of the ordeals is not knowing. So that if you know the outcome, you're not in it yet. <laughs> and so that also, this is a big difficulty in the Western world. People are spending a lot of time trying to develop the strategic plan for returning. It's not about the strategic plan. It's about not knowing so that new knowledge can come in. It's, it's about accepting the inability to make this work so that something that is not simply logical or not simply cultural can enter. It's really not knowing so that something inspired, something divine, something imaginal can enter. And it's obvious in a sense. The only way we can learn or know something that we didn't know is to be in the place of not knowing. It's the only way. If I pretend I know, I don't learn anymore. And, and yet, as adults, as Western-educated people, to say we just don't know is uh, really hard. And yet, it's the exact thing that you do when you're ill. Am I going to be okay? I don't know. That's the beginning of the cure. You have to say, I don't know what to do before you go to a therapist. So we're looking for a therapy of culture. We're looking for a healing of the soul. Uh, and we've already been pulled into it, and I think it's kind of hard to deny it. But as to will we finish it, it's not clear. It's not clear. I'm reminded of a tale, and this is um, the Wasteland tale, where the, the three sons of the king who is injured, two of them, they just can't, can't do it. But the third one is the one who doesn't know and he, uh, what does he, he goes to someone who is unlikely source to find what might cure the nation. Does that relate? Yeah, exactly. It really relates. So that one version of that is the water of life. And what's missing is the water of life. And everybody's getting sick because of it. Sound familiar? And so, uh, so then naturally the two oldest brothers, the two older princes, they want to go out and do it. And of course, they go out with rigid ideas and, and self-pretensions, and they each get stuck, and they can't get out of where they're stuck. And the only one left to go out is the youngest one, and he goes out there, and he's going down the road, and he has no idea what he's doing. And, and there's a dwarf on the side of the road who calls out and says, young fellow, where are you going in the world? What do you think is going to happen? And he stops. He's on a horse. He gets down, and he says to the dwarf, I have no idea. I'm just looking for the water of life. I have no idea where it is. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And the dwarf says, well, I do. And the dwarf then gives him directions to how to find the other, world, the other castle where the water is, but also gives him two gifts. 
and one is an iron rod and the other is two loaves of bread. And, and then the dwarf, a dwarf is like a combination of a child and an old person. It's, it's a mixture of uh, beginner's mind and ancient wisdom. A dwarf is one of those intermediaries, they used to be called, between this world and the other world. And the dwarf says, you're going to need the iron rod to do the difficult things and to bang on the gates of the other world. And then once the gate's open, you're going to need the bread to feed the lions on either side of the gate. Otherwise, you won't make it through. The other world is the inner world, the world of the soul, the world of imagination, the eternal world. And so, but he gives them directions and he gives them gifts that are critical or tools that are needed. And so there's something helpful there. In other words, rather than a strategic plan, are we listening to the dwarves? Are we listening to nature? Are we listening to the youngest parts of ourselves? Because the young parts of, whether it's the youngest daughter, uh, Cinderella, or it's the youngest brother, it's always the youngest part of the self that knows what to do, including admitting I don't know. And so the youngest part is the part of ourselves who have been exiled, the part of ourselves that was too foolish or too dreamy or the family didn't want that part, and we have to reconnect to that part. This entire culture has to get younger in terms of imagination, and when we're in that space, we're willing to say, we don't know, let's pray and see what happens. Let's go on a walkabout and see what happens. Let's listen to the animals. Let's listen to the unseen figures. Okay, all right. There's our direction. I'm here with Michael Mead. If you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, mosaicvoices.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with mythologist and ritual keeper, Michael Mead, and we're talking about initiation and a collective worldwide initiation that we're going through and how we might return, how we might finish this ritual in beauty and what ways that we can tap into to really be informed as to finishing this ritual in, as I say, in beauty and make it a meaningful return. Often we hear that it takes us to be at our wit's end to actually start to go deep and say, okay, I give up, uh, I, I need help with this. 
And so in doing that, you were talking about this deep self. So let's talk about the deep self then and what you mean by the deep self that is available to all of us but rarely understood or informs us. So in trying to figure out how to imagine what's going on and what to do about it, and in hearing from so many people how overwhelmed people feel with anxiety, with fear, with uncertainty. The world is so full of uncertainty, it's almost overwhelming. And so, so then what do you do with that? Here at Mosaic, we've done a lot of work with at-risk youth, with homeless youth, with battle veterans, with people who are going through great turmoil and might be lost. And one of the things that I've learned is that most people don't know that there's a deep self. I mean, people that are on spiritual paths, they learn about that. And the deep self is often considered to be the eternal self or the Atman, if you're following ancient Indian practices. And the deep self is there, but the little self or the ego self doesn't know it. Now, in the story that we were talking about, the two older brothers, I call them the ego brothers, the ones that are so sure of what to do and, and I'm going to win and conquer. And, uh, and that's the way the ego is. The ego doesn't really know what it's doing, but it, it likes to pretend it does. Well, when the world becomes this rattled, when change has to happen, the ego is terrified. The fear that most people are feeling is based in the ego. And if a person thinks this is up to me as one individual person, they can be really overwhelmed by a rapidly changing, easily disrupted world. So what we used to do with bringing young people into, you know, kind of, uh, we were doing these camps of healing and awakening kind of thing. Um, and we would lay them down on the ground. And often I would give them a stone to hold down by the belly and begin to breathe to the stone and let the earth hold you. And all of a sudden, they realize there's something stable that they can access. Um, and you can do it that simply. You literally go lay on the ground if you're anxious. The earth is the energy that holds everybody. It stabilizes things. And then there's a central earth, like an earth energy deep inside a person and put a stone there to represent it and breathe to the stone, the next thing, you're fine. You start to get settled. You feel stabilized. You feel that there's some center in your life. Well, those are the ancient practices for awakening to the deep self within. So I started to imagine that the first way of learning how to handle this collectively might be um, imagining a deeper self that is not afraid of this. The self, uh, the deep self is like the spirit of life itself. It's not terrified by change. It's not overwhelmed by illness or, or other things that are happening. And so it might be that psychologically, people need some awareness like that in order not to get overwhelmed with anxiety and fear, which now is not just personal anxiety and fear, it's collective. The collective anxiety and fear invades the psyche of individuals. So it's more overwhelming than just the anxiety that we're going to have a test tomorrow. This is like anxiety testing all of humanity. So one of the ideas is the connection to a deep self. Native American tribes would call it the great spirit. It's out in nature, it's up in the heavens, but it's also inside the person. 
And then in India and Eastern practices, it would be called the Atman. Everybody had a name for it. All religions are based upon it, and all spiritual practices at some point have to posit the idea that what we're looking for is inside us. And so we just call it the deep self. You know, uh, one of the, the questions that you pose to, to us uh, to get in touch with this is the question, when have you experienced being connected to the deeper self? And I would suggest that you have many examples in your life, and I would love for you to talk about one of them. And this is when you were uh, a newly family man, and you were married, new relationship, and four kids now, and you lost your job. Do you, do you recall this moment when yes, you— Yes, I do, yeah. And uh, actually, I had uh, created a festival, and on— in terms of the the music and everything that happened, it was great. Everybody loved it, but it lost a bunch of money, and I had no money. And it was just at the point where I had I had four children, and I entered a new marriage with my four children and no money. Suddenly, and I went into a depression, and I, I really couldn't even figure out how to understand it or what to do. I was in that ordeal. I had descended. Previously, I was accomplishing things, and all of a sudden, and I had let everybody down, and it was just horrible. And I got a phone call asking me if I would come and teach at a conference, which I had never done, uh, but I had been telling stories and playing drums and things like that. And so the invitation was to tell drums at a conference um, that was, I don't know, 1,500 miles away, and if I wanted to, I could bring my family. And so I actually quickly said, all right, because this way at least I won't be here in, in deep depression. But I never thought about the fact I didn't know how to do it. I had never done it, didn't know what to do. And it was only once I was there that I realized I was, be, I was introduced as a great drummer, which I'm not, and as a great teacher, which I'm not. And I, and I was like, what was I, 30 years old or something? And um, my God, I think I was 30 years old. So anyway... Um, it's in the morning of the day that in the afternoon I have to begin teaching 35 people at a time how to play hand drums. And I really don't know what to do. And the only thing I could figure was I had heard there was a river nearby that had a bend in it. And I went, took off through the forest just with that bit of knowledge. And somehow I found the bend in the river. And my idea was I'm going to dive into the river and I'm staying underwater until I get the solution to my problem. And that's what I did. And underwater there, as I'm thinking I'm running out of air, you had mentioned before, at our wit's end. I was at my wit's end. I was at my oxygen end. <laughs> and suddenly it occurred to me that what I had to do was stand with my back to the group of people and play a drum in the air so that they could line their hands up with mine and follow that way. And so I had to teach I had to reverse the teaching position and do it that way, and it absolutely worked. I mean, it worked immediately, and, and so I became a, a teacher of drumming as a result. In this way, Michael, you actually physically uh, went to the depths. You went to the deep pool of water uh, and, and 
and got the information you needed. I mean, you physically did that, and you. I think you said you you weren't going to come up from the water till you got a a signal uh, information that you needed. Yeah. So it's in a, it's a, it's a an example of of the mode we have to be in, right? When I look back, uh, it was the youngest part of me that loves to jump into the water anyway, and it was the part of me that that knew I don't really, I really don't know. I've got hours before I have to do this. I can't take another failure. I just failed. My whole family knows I failed. I can't take another failure. Um, and yet I've never done it. And But I trusted that there was something that would guide me. And the motions indicate that somehow I knew that I had to go down. I had to descend uh, to get away from my ego's fears and anxieties and trust something deeper. And so, yeah, down there in the water, whatever you want to call it. Uh, by the way, it was a baptism. It was a, it was a baptism ritual anyway. I was invited to do something I'd never done. I was going to have to dive in at some point. And so I've made it a literal baptism without thinking about it. But it shows the idea that there is something deeper than us that knows why we're here. So, you know, the truth is, I've been teaching ever since that day. That was an initiation into teaching. It was an initiation into teaching groups of people. I had not done that. And from that day on, that's what I've been doing. So it was actually a, um, a vocational initiation that was spontaneous. And so that's where we are. We're being asked to do something like imagine and help create a new world, a better world, a wor world that doesn't divide people and reject people, a world that doesn't, doesn't have uh, culture opposed to nature. We're being asked to help bring things back together. And the only way to do it is to go into the deep water and let stuff come in that is trying to find us anyway. So one more thing there. So if we think of it as a collective rite of passage, then it's like we're all jumping in the water, and then, but each person's gonna find a different thing. So the way that it changes is not because we all get the same idea or we all join the same religion. Nature doesn't do that. Nature has all kinds of trees and forests and animals and, and landscapes, um, and so does the human soul. And so the answer comes from transforming the individual soul from within, which means finding what was there trying to become known anyway, and then people begin to go on their own paths. And according to the old ideas, if the deep self is involved, each path will be a path of healing, and each path will be connected to the creative, and no one has to be the hero. Everyone is just their own seeker, and somehow it begins to change. That's the idea. I, I love that, and I know that you often uh, refer to it in, in your work as um, the inner plot line of our, our lives, and I'm reminded of a wonderful poem that I think you know uh, by William Stafford, The Way The Way It Is. is. Yeah. So can you share that poem with us? Yeah, and of course, I knew Bill Stafford and worked with him, and this is uh, a little poem. He wrote a poem every day. And this is one of the poems he wrote. There's a thread you follow. It goes amongst things that change, but it doesn't change. People 
wonder about what you are pursuing and you have to explain about the thread. It's hard for others to see it, but while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt and become sick and they die and you will suffer and grow old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. Just don't ever let go of that thread. I love that. Thank you so much. I'm speaking with Michael Mead, and he is the presenter of the podcast, Living Myth Podcast. And if you want to know about his work, go to mosaicvoices.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Michael Mead, renowned storyteller and author of many, many books, including Awakening the Soul and The Water of Life. And um, Michael, I'd love to talk about, we hear this over and over, oh good, we're out of the pandemic now and people are starting to come get vaccinated and come in back into Uh, connection, physical connection, and so many people are saying, oh, good, let's return to normal. I'm looking for, for me, I'm looking for those, those little pieces that show us that there are some people that are coming back with some wisdom, and I want to share one, one piece that I heard on TV on a late night show. There's a musician, John Baptiste, who I, he's just wonderful. He's, he, he's on the uh, Colbert Late Night show. And he said, as it's the first time, the first week that they've had a real live audience with them. And that's a very different, they've, they've been working for 15 months without an audience, just speaking into the void. And now they have this audience. And John said, you know, It's not that we're doing this for you. We're doing this with you. And I just, that really keyed me like, okay, that's a change. That's a change of viewpoint. That's a widening of the lens that that we're not just uh, sitting back and being spectators uh, to life's unfolding, but we're doing it together. And I know you have something to say on that. So that seems like the realization of, from the outside, everybody's talking about the audience and the performers. But when when you don't have the audience for a long time and they come back, you realize, oh, wait a minute, we were doing that together. Like you mentioned, I'm a storyteller and I don't uh, rehearse stories and I I don't, um, what do you call that? I tell stories kind of spontaneously. So every time I tell a story, it's slightly different And I know the difference comes from the audience. I'm telling the same story to a different audience. And literally the words come out differently because the unconscious, if you want to 
call it that, or the subconscious or the soul, is reading what's in the audience and providing words that I didn't use the last time I told the story. Storytelling is done with the audience, not to the audience. So, so I really love that idea. And spontaneous musicians are doing that too. Um, and so, uh, so what that leads to in terms of the bigger framework we were talking about, rites of passage. So inside that middle period, one uh, key thing is liminality being betwixt and between and accepting it, not knowing what's going to happen next in order to know something we never knew before, liminality. And the other energy that's in there in the middle is communitas. Communitas is the old Latin word that means community, but not simple community because we live next door to each other. Communitas means something so deep happens, it pulls everybody together whether they agree or not. It's just a moment of deep human community, communitas. And I think that's what he's talking about. And so, um, honestly, I'm a little sad about it. Um, and here's why. First of all, going back to normal is not even a good idea. Normal, if it exists, is not a place anybody wants to be. Uh, the old saying is, normal can never know itself. So going back to normal means going for a, another dose of ignorance. But in a rite of passage, you're trying to get to the new place or the other place that no one has been to yet. And on the way, not only do we have to go through the ordeal, we have to get in touch with the deep community of humanity. And this is the sense, you hear it all the time, now when people say we're all in it together. So the symptom is we're all polarized. The cure is we're all in it together. The symptom is not the problem, it's trying to tell us how to solve the problem. And so there's a small example with the musician saying we're, we're with the audience, that we're, we're here to make music together. Music, the word comes from the muses. The muses are the eternal source, the divine source of music and also amusement because it's a late night joke show. Anyway, so the, so the muses show up when everybody wants to be together and, and receive the music. Uh, I know the musicians are practicing, but they didn't make the music. The music came through them. Um, and then the, the, the musicians are delivering it to the audience. And then we're all in it together. So how do we get back all in it together? That's the trick. And, I, and the reason I say I'm sad is because I know that on a collective level, people think they're trying to go back instead of going forward. And then I also know that of the three steps of the rite of passage, the third one is the one that doesn't happen. If you say, how many people have experienced separation, people are waving three arms. If you say, how many have been through an ordeal, they're still waving. Um, when you say, how many have experienced a return in which the suffering has been recognized and the change in life has been recognized in a way that's meaningful and you find out that very few hands go up. For instance, all the people that died because of COVID and that couldn't have proper funerals, not that most people do proper funerals anymore, but had no funerals. There's a whole bunch of funerals that need to happen that one way that people would come back together would be to honor the dead in a way that's meaningful. And there are many ways to do it, and actually there's bone memories of how to do it, but I have a feeling that's not what's going to happen. Or people gather to 
hear music and all, which is so instinctive and feels so right. But if right before it happened, people also acknowledged those who can't be there because they died or they're ill or, or the, what we lost, not just in terms of people, but other things we lost, that would make the concert a ritual because then the music would be the muses easing and healing the soul and reminding everybody of communitas. So the sadness I feel is that the likelihood that people won't know the little steps that turn a gathering into a ritual. Uh, because what happens in a ritual that's different from a gathering is change occurs, transformation occurs. If we really could all come together and realize how many souls have passed, how many people have died, and that we know them, and that by knowing a few we're connected to many others, we'd realize that as, a, as all of humanity we have lost, literally lost, loved ones and important ones and, and orphaned ones and all the kinds that we lost, and the soul can feel it. And if that became conscious and then there was music, then you get transformation because you say, because we acknowledge all the death and all the suffering, we now get to feel celebratory about life in a meaningful way. And we're living as we're supposed to live, enjoying the opportunity and the beauty of things while remembering the sorrow and the sadness of things, because that's part of the work of being human. Wow, that's, what a, that's very constructive. That's a very real suggestion that we do sometimes we come together in ritual like that or music or something and there's an invitation of um acknowledging we're on the lands of the uh, traditional peoples so that's becoming more and more but you are saying also we should add to that that we stop for a moment and realize the loss that we have collectively experienced huge huge loss not only of the, the like in the US i think it's over 600,000 people died but it's all the lives that were affected also by their death children and 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 bereaved uh, you know wives and husbands and 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 grandchildren and the soul feels all of it and when it hits that massive scale we know we're in a funeral at some level, and the and the and the routine of funerals is exactly, you know, separation, death, renewal. Everybody separates. When you, it, it used to be when someone died, for three days no one went to work, because everybody felt them die because people lived in smaller groups, and so everybody had to attend to death. And so the death of one person pulled everybody into an awareness of death. And then people would not eat or whatever they would do that would be the ordeal. And then they would do the burial, which would be the grieving, which is so human and so natural and so healing. And then you go back to life and you end with a party because those who are alive have to live life. And you see the three steps there. That was common throughout the world. Three days stoppage of normal life, so-called, when someone dies. And now so many people have died, but there won't be a stoppage. People want to get it going as soon as they can with as much, you know, material interaction and, you know, all that stuff. The soul feels more loss. 
And of course, the people who have lost loved ones, what's, what happens to them? They go walking down the street and they hear the music. They, they might not even feel invited because no one's there to say, we know you lost specifically. And, and I mean, we've done these kind of things, you know, not on a national scale, but for a winter solstice, we did an online ritual and people sent in the names of the dead. We created uh, altars that people could see online and we had each name, we, you know, read names and put them on the altars and, and sang and all that kind of stuff, just, just to do something. I'm thinking also of another ritual that we did here in the U.S., and that was the HIV-AIDS quilt that went around all over the place, and all the, the people who had died had these squares on these quilts. And you see the wisdom. This is what I call bone memory. We know how to do this. Why did they make a quilt and weave everybody into a fabric? Because that's an understanding we're still connected to the ones that we lost if we weave something together with them. And so they went right back to the origins of life, which usually has the three sisters, the sisters of fate, otherwise known as the weird sisters, who gave you your thread at the very beginning. And, and people used to understand we each have our individual thread, as the poem said, but our threads are woven in with everybody else's threads and our threads are woven into the skein or the, the context of the entire world. And so when they made that quilt that was so instinctively, psychologically, mythologically correct, and because they were keeping everybody woven in, the dead with the living, as people used to do, not to be morbid, but, but in remembering the dead, we live life more fully. If we really think about it, if, if I've lost a loved one, in the pandemic, and I really want to honor them, I honor them by living more fully. Um, but that means recognizing what I've lost. So anyway, yeah, that quilt was an, an instinctive example of how you weave the tragedy into life and give it beauty and remind everybody. I'm thinking of a, a samba song. You brought up my drumming background. And, and so there's, uh, there's a samba song that says, um, Happiness is the best thing there is. Um, it's better to be happy than sad. A good samba or a piece of music is a form of prayer. But to make a prayer beautiful, you have to remember the sorrow of the world. I'm here with Michael Mead, and we're talking about awakening the soul and, and collective ritual. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Je 
I'm here with Michael Mead, and Michael, you just mentioned uh, happiness, and I I want to talk about happiness. <laughs> I think that um, Vladimir Putin in um, the 2021 G7, after the summit, G7 summit, he he mentioned a he thought he said it was a tall story quote, but it actually wasn't. There's no happiness in life, only a mirage of it on the horizon. But that took me to something that Sir Lawrence Vanderpost said. He he was a friend of Carl Jung and a, a documentary filmmaker. He, he did a documentary film on the Kalahari Bush people. And he said uh, that um, it's not about searching for happiness, but searching for meaning. And here's a quote. There's nothing wrong with the search for happiness, but we are using happiness here as if it were the ultimate in human striving. And what gives far greater comfort to the soul is meaning, because meaning transfigures all. And once what you are living and what you are doing has meaning for you, it is irrelevant whether you are happy or unhappy. You are content. You are not alone in your spirit. You belong. Your idea of happiness versus meaning, well, I don't want to say versus. I don't want to put them in polarities, but, but um, uh, meaning what uh, our plot line is really tapping into what gives us meaning in our lives, maybe. I think it leads not simply to happiness, but eventually to joy. So I want to come back to the idea of joy, which is a deep emotion. Happiness is a fleeting thing. Joy is, is a deep emotion that lives in the body after we experience it. But what you made me think of uh, just the other day, I did a podcast on peace. Um, because people are so unpeaceful and disrupted. And, but I wanted to look at the roots of the word peace, which comes from the Latin pacem or pax. And there's two roots. One is root goes to um, settling and tranquility. And the other root of peace goes to agreements, making agreements, so that you have a peace treaty um, as well as states of peace. And so the assumption is that the peace treaty is about the outside world, but really... The idea of making agreements gives us peace of mind inside ourselves. And what I mean is this, following uh, you know, what you just read, the meaning comes from living the life we came here to live. Earlier we were calling it connecting to the deep self or following the plot line of the soul. That's what gives us meaning. Meaning in, is not general, it's specific. What my life means. And... We're told that we can't find that, but we can. And the place where it is, is inside, in the deep roots of ourselves. So there's two routes to peace, according to this etymology. One is find a quiet pool and sit by it and try to become quiet. The other is find the thread of your life and follow it. And there will be meaning and the peaceful sense of I am myself, I'm here doing what, I, what I'm supposed to be or intended to do, I'm contributing meaning to the world, um, which is also like contributing truth to the world, and, and, and therefore I can have moments of joy 
which are like an ecstatic sense of being fully alive, even though I'm aware of the tragedy that's happening to other people and happening to all of us collectively. That's how I would go with that. How beautiful, how beautiful. I, I love it. I, I often um, say, instead of follow the money, follow the joy. That's, that's the thread. To find that thread in our lives, what gives us joy. I, I totally am on board with you when you talk about joy in that way. Joy is partly generated by being creative. And being creative, we have to be ourselves to be creative. Everybody has creative energy and capacity. And that is a source of joy, especially in the midst of a collapsing world. And I want to go back to something else that you said early on in this conversation about um, being heroic. And we don't have to be heroic in this uh, contribution, that in this creativity we're, we're giving to the world. It's, it's not about being grandiose. It, it's something else, which maybe you could help us articulate Well, I often talk about it as living our uniqueness. So we begin with the idea, nature only makes originals. There's many cedar trees in the forest, but each one is different. Nature only makes originals. So each person is an original. And and the essence of originality is called the uniqueness of the soul. And so in living the uniqueness, for some people, that, that could be a heroic journey. That could be. For other people, it's completely different. It's an introverted deeply, you know, quiet interior journey. And so the idea, I think, I wrote a book called The The Genius Myth, saying that right now we don't need heroicism as it's usually understood. That's part of what's got us into trouble. Cultural heroicism that says that we're more important than nature, for instance. Um, And the heroicism is often gets masculine and muscular and domineering. Genius, the old meaning of genius, is the spirit that's there when you're born, the spirit that we bring into the world, and that is inside everybody, you know, girl, boy, older, younger, uh, any ethnicity, any kind of background, everybody has their own genius, inner life spirit. And when we can find that, we're automatically living with meaning. And going back to Jung, Jung said, when you're expressing this deeper self, which you can also call the genius self, uh, you're automatically benefiting your neighbors and the world. So that unlike Freud, what, what a lot of what Jung brought was from Eastern mythology. The idea that what we're looking for is, with, is within us and the idea when we find that it, it's automatically beneficial and it's satisfying, not just to us, but to others because we're bringing meaning and beauty and truth to the world. The truth that's missing is not the truth that might be created from facts. Data doesn't create the truth, it just creates more data. The truth is the lived truth that we make by living who we are, which is the source of satisfaction for us, but also the road of meaning. So I I think the quote that you read was really right on. In the midst of all this, the only thing to do is become oneself. It's the only thing to do. I mean, look at the options. Conspiracy theories? How's that working? The reason people fall for conspiracy theories is they don't know who they are. So they could be anybody. So they might as well join something that tells them who they are. You know what I'm saying? We're being called to become ourselves. That's the threshold. And then if we're following the thread of our own souls, we become 
able to help reweave the quilt of humanity. And I think that, as, as you say, we need to be confident that we can tap into this deep self and there is something to contribute. How it, it doesn't have to be big. It can be our center of influence is our center of influence. It may be our family or our neighbors or it may be global. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how big or small. No, and so there's an Irish myth that says... When everything falls apart, uh, the center falls apart. That's what we're talking about now. Like politically, there's no center. Extreme right, extreme left, you name it, you, you're getting extremes. It's all falling apart. That's the um, mythological condition we're in. But the Irish myth, like other myths, will say, well, this has happened before. And when the center is missing, it can't completely disappear. It just appears at the edges in dark places. So the old myth was, go to a place that looks dark to you, that you're, you're somehow attracted to, and find your thread. Dive under the water and stay there until the thread shows up, and then go become a teacher. You know, that's, that's what the myth is saying. And if each person would just get their thread and pull it back towards the center of culture, which could be the next concert, if everybody just pulls their threads back, the world gets rewoven from the individual threads and no one has to make the design or feel hero heroically in charge or, it, you know, it just happens. And the way it happens in life, actual life, is someone is following their thread and, and you know, you can feel foolish at times and other people don't understand what you're doing and then you come to an intersection. And in that intersection in life, people are saying, we have this illness, we don't know what to do. And you go, oh, I've been working on this thing and I think it might be a cure. And someone else is arriving at a different intersection and saying, well, here's how we can help you know, reduce the disparity of economics. And people are just following their thread and the many, many problems are finding many, many solutions and no one's in charge, no one's the hero, and we don't even have to agree. We just have to agree to be genuinely human. Oh, I just love that the burden is is reduced, uh, that taken off of our shoulders. We do not have to agree. We have to contribute. And that comes from the gift-giving self. So whether we call it the genius self um, or we call it the, the deep self, uh, Jung referred to the golden self, and he got that idea from Eastern myth. And so um, that's the gift. The gifts are already in there. We came into the world, each one of us gifted and aimed. And if we can find those gifts and, and align with that aim, we're not only satisfy ourselves, will contribute meaning and beauty to the world. Michael, I want to thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. Well, I'm really happy to do it. And, and the whole idea of New Dimensions is really connected to that third level or third step in the rite of passage. So thank you for thank you. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. I've been speaking with Michael Mead. Uh, he's the author of many books, including The Genius Myth and uh, Awakening the Soul of the Water of Life. Uh, also, he presents uh, the Living Myth podcast. So if you want to know more about his work, go to mosaicvoices.org, O-R-G, mosaicvoices.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,735. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.